0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Brooklyn Botanic Garden, a stunning 52-acre garden in the heart of Brooklyn. Open year-round. Learn more at bbg.org. Hi, I'm Moxie Rosenbloom. My dad, Harry Rosenbloom,
2: hosts Feast Your Ears on Heritage Radio Network. Right now, HRN is having a summer membership drive. Becoming a member is so easy, and you'll help support shows like my dad's. You can sign up for a one time donation or become a monthly sustaining member by visiting slash donate.
1: Let's keep food radio on the airwaves this summer. I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of the next episode of Meet in 3, our weekly food news roundup. We're fresh off our trip to Slow Food Nations in Denver, a festival that brought together advocates to discuss the future of food. And this week, we're bringing you a special episode inspired by the new Equity, Inclusion, and Justice Manifesto released by Slow Food USA.
0: If we're going to solve food security, we need to say these people have a right to good healthful food. But we have to do that in a way that kind of insulates this system from the vagaries of the market. Because when you're at a table with somebody, you recognize their humanity. And when somebody cooks for you and serves you food, in a way they're saying they care about your survival.
3: How can we put things into our own hands and have the people of Puerto Rico gain real access to healthy local foods?
1: Listen to Meet in Three this week for our highlights from Slow Food Nations, available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hello. This is Dana Callan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on a Heritage Radio Network, where each week I interview an extraordinary person who works behind the scenes in the restaurant business. We talk about successes and challenges in the industry and in life. Today, my guest is Elise Kornak, someone who has defined success differently from many other from with against many uh, other people in the restaurant world. After working at the Spotted Pig and at Aquavit in New York City, she opened a restaurant with her wife, Anna Hieronymus, called Take Root. It was, it took root really quickly. Do people make that pun all the time? It's sort <laughs> all of appalling, right? Yeah, it's so yeah. bad. But Don't it's, you-
3: it's so easy to do. I know, so. it must make
2: you want to change the it name. It does. We, we
3: wanted to change it upon it happening. Yeah, so.
2: right. Okay. Skip the metaphor. But it was beloved, booked, won awards, uh for the cooking and received a Michelin star Uh, and about a little over a year ago Anna and Elise did the completely unexpected for the rest of the world but I think completely expected for them closed the restaurant at you can call it its height but who knows what the height would have been right that's one of those Buddhist things true right Uh, and moved upstate so welcome Elise well, uh, thank you for having me. I was
3: gonna. I'm so used to. I feel like I haven't gotten out of saying like welcome to people and thank you for coming. Like even when I'm at somebody else's house, Anna and I still do it. So awkward. But thank you for having me. Right. Um, That always reminds me
2: of my childhood. I was so well trained. I actually I curtsied when I you know when I would shake hands. I would um, curtsy when I met someone. Yeah, and that didn't, I love the formality. I know like, that so doesn't stop special. until I yeah. was like. Thirteen years old, and very I elegant. It was embarrassing. Yeah. Yeah, I had an elegant youth. Um, so we first met at Fab in Charleston just a few months ago, which for me I feel like is so late in your life in food because um, you made uh, so such a gigantic grand mark with with the restaurant, and so I was so happy to get to know you a little bit. And what struck me so deeply was your sense of originality honesty, um, you know, compa- compassion. And I just want to talk about all of those things because the way in which you and Anna have chosen to live in this world, the restaurant world that, that I've spent so much time part of is I would
3: say completely original thank you. Yeah. Well, I'm very grateful that we met a couple months ago. It's so funny because we had so many people that we both admired and loved in between us. So I felt like maybe from afar we were connected. So it didn't seem like I had met somebody I'd never met. Um, but yeah, I, it's funny. I've been told since I was very little, like from my parents, why do you always have to do things different than everybody else? You're making it so difficult for yourself. But for me, I always felt like I was making it f- more fun, you know, um, because I was kind of creating a path that maybe others would follow or maybe they wouldn't. I didn't really care either way. But how did you, I am always curious how one
2: gets that confidence born to it, I imagine. But are there stories of when someone tried to stop you from doing that thing that you wanted to do and you just kept
3: going? I mean, literally all the time. I mean, every note from every teacher was always to my parents you know, Elise was doing X, Y, or Z and, you know, I tried to get her to stop doing X, Y, or Z and she wouldn't. And that was something that always, you know, kind of, I kind of, loved because it made me realize that, okay, I wasn't doing what everybody else was doing and definitely gave my parents like every gray hair on their head. But, um, I think as I got older, they started to kind of live vicariously through my difference. And, um, my mom is also a little bit of a rebel herself in her spirit. And so I think I got a little bit of that from her as well. It's great when your parents don't try to shut it down. My, my son,
2: William is here with us and, uh, I don't know, William, have I tried to shut you down?
0: He says not
2: <laughs> He says not particularly good. I, I think that's great, as it should be. Um, so, I love that what you said about the launch of Take Root was that it was an anthropological project in mm-hmm. a certain way—a a way of looking at, at restaurants and what you personally wanted to accomplish, and seeing where those two things mm-hmm. could meet. When you look back and you—that's your textbook. Like, what did you learn from that? Is it possible to do a restaurant? Um, in a completely personal way, and is that our future?
3: You know, I think
2: the... the And actually, well, let's start with what Take Root stood for and what it was, because our listeners might not know. So in the broadest sense, it was a restaurant that was run by two people, manned (laughs) by two people, everything from sweeping the stoop, garbage cooking, cleaning. cleaning. Um, Crazy but true. Crazy but true. And uh, it was 12 seats as a tasting menu, it was 120 or $125 and uh, 10, 12 courses. So, and it was your beautiful, completely coherent vision. Yes. Um, so that's superficially because those mm-hmm. are just facts. Mm-hmm. But what did emotionally was that restaurant to you?
3: You know, emotionally, I feel like for us, Anna and I, in our lives, in dining and in our relationship, we have this constant motto that is the ba- creating the balance of comfort and intrigue. And we have mentioned it in many interviews and to many friends and to many family members that we kind of feel like that's best defines what we look for in a good experience. Um, and it doesn't always have to involve food, but when it does and it, and it's done well, you can really tell what I mean by that. You know, there might be a course or a moment when you're dining at Take Root or when you were dining at Take Root, (laughs) um, that you felt like you were having this big hug. You know, I remember the brioche course would come out and the room would be dead quiet. And um, there were huge slices that looked like the little brioche emoji that you click on. (laughs) And the room smelled like the Wonder Bread Factory, but better. And there was not a sound to be had. And there was crunching and there was smearing of butter. And then it stopped, and the next course would come out and be very challenging. Either it would be a technique that people hadn't seen before, or maybe it was an ingredient, or the way it was plated, um, and then people would kind of sit up straight again, and then you'd hear murmuring and whispering, and we loved that push and pull, you know, the, the opposite sides of the spectrum, because always we, we would remind our guests that you were going to come swinging back through the middle every once in a while. Um, and I think that our approach to opening Take Root and running it was very much that as well. Um, you know, we wanted to have a quality of life, so that would be the comfort side, which um, how we did that, not having staff, not having to pay other people, creating our own schedule. And then the intrigue part was always kind of keeping ourselves on the feet by doing something a little different. Um, that was painful sometimes, but often very thrilling at the same time. I. Notice the use of the word over and over of intrigue, (laughs) and it feels like it it wasn't workshopped.
2: It just like came to you because it's sort of in your spirit. It's true, Um, and also I feel like some marketing person somewhere would say that's not a good word. It's true. (laughs) Somebody (laughs) did say that (laughs) (laughs) to us. I think it's a really great word, but I want to go down that road because you've explained it clearly in terms of the, the menu in the restaurant, but I want to know what it means to you, like, in your everyday life. Like, you know, what intrigues you right now? Like, is it a
3: book? Is it film? Is it people? And, like, what specifically? I think, for me, the word intrigue uh, kind of means that you want to dig deeper. You know, there's something that has piqued your interest, and then you do want to know more. You're not just saying, that's interesting, and walking away from it. Um, right, Currently, right now, as we're working on um, our next project, I'm very passionate about historical narrative and how that plays into food. Um, What are the stories that are people were telling that don't involve food and how did they affect how food was being eaten then? The obvious is. And what's an example of that? So for example, um, in creating some dishes for our, upcoming project, you know, there are some that are inspired by actual agricultural techniques in the Catskills, and some that are just stories of how, like, somebody had this crazy run-in with their neighbor over their land parcel of land in 1830, and the way they interacted in the conversation they had reminded me of the juxtaposition of two ingredients. So that's not something a diner is going to pick up on immediately. (laughs) Of course not, and certainly we're not going to have anyone stand and tell them that story either, because that would bore them, but hopefully that the spirit of the dish kind of tells that story in its own capacity. So, I've been very drawn by narrative that is not food narrative. And how does that affect how we eat and think and, and cook?
2: And is it important to you to know that in your mind as you're creating? Like, is that um, sort of the, the bedrock for you? Because your food is complex and in- mm-hmm. intriguing. Mm-hmm. But um, <laughs> it's, it's interesting. But do you
3: need that narrative in your mind in order to create that? You know, I do. Because... I, I always wanted to be the kind of chef that said, oh, you know, a tomato is perfect when it just says olive oil and salt and let the ingredients speak for themselves. It just, I, th- I think maybe my mind is working you know, too 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 much, and it's on overdrive constantly, and it's thinking a little too much about everything. But in the sense, I kind of feel grateful that I'm looking always for the story and the meaning, and kind of why people love something or why they don't, and then wanting to kind of push that into my dishes. And it's important for me because I feel like there's something, there's depth to everything I'm doing, and and that kind of keeps me going. Well, let's talk about the relationship of that and art, uh,
2: because when you were in college, you studied art. Mm-hmm. I know you studied. Um, drawing and then you worked in art galleries mm-hmm. afterwards and to me what you just described is um, really the artist's work mm-hmm. right, if I go and look at a Corn, or if I go and look at an abstract painter mm-hmm. uh, I might see none of the story, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I might read about the story um, but it's my emotional reaction I mean mm-hmm. what do you feel like the relationship between um, your loving and studying art and the cooking
3: that you're doing and the thinking that you're doing. What is that? Um, I think because my senior thesis was uh, essentially, it was very thin um, graphite drawings with wire. And so what I created was uh, I would draw something, you know, they were all figure drawings and I would see what was there and I'd want to remove some of the pieces. Maybe it was a line that created the elbow or the shoulder and I'd want to replace it with something that was not on the page. So for me, it was all about that missing piece. And so when you're looking at, food and you put something that together, uh, that everyone assumes goes together. But if you take out one of those pieces and someone's saying, well, oh, the basil's missing from this tomato salad. Well, why is it missing? And what is it being replaced with? Then you're creating a conversation. So by putting the wire on the paper, I created a shadow when the light hit it. So the shadow landed where the graphite would, but when the light was not there, there was no line. And so the idea of pulling things. That's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) I I actually, it's something I'm very, very proud of. And it's so funny because it was completely different than what I was doing before that thesis so what had you been doing before very broad strokes oil painting and when I switched what I wanted to do to my advisor she was like basically dropped dead I was like (laughs) six weeks before the senior thesis show and she's like what you're basically done I was like I hate everything and I want to trash it (laughs) all so Do do you feel that way about your dishes sometimes absolutely I mean I wouldn't be a tragic artist if I didn't want to throw things away half the time are you tragic I think a little. I mean, I, my brothers on, have been telling really? me I'm so emo since I was so little. I mean, I would write these, like, really emotional songs for my parents as gifts. So that's, I mean, that pretty much sums it up. You don't strike me as tragic.
2: Uh, anymore, um, anymore. Uh, so, um, but what was the emo part? Like, was was there a great sadness that um, you were drawing upon?
3: Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I was... Uh, in the closet until after college so I'm certain there's an influence there Um, and then on top of it I think that there's always something when you're creating something that you want people to understand it but at the same time when they understand it too much you almost feel like they're getting too close to you so you want to push it away and I remember Anna always going mad because I would create a new dish I'd finally put it on the menu everyone would love it and then I would take it off and she was like well why are you doing that makes literally no sense I'd say well everyone's understanding it too much it needs to be removed and she doesn't make any sense to me. I said, well, it does to me. So, I'm um, but then, you know, often with some conversation between she and I, I would soften around it and understand why people were loving it was not because they understood it because they did not And then I would say, okay, I, now I'm, I'm willing to maybe leave it on for a few more weeks. <laughs> so your goal is to not be understood. Um, I think that's be I, known, I think again, known. it's that balance, you know, it's that comfort and intrigue. I want people to feel comfortable around me. I, I find myself rather Approachable. I've been told that my whole life, but at the same time, I give people, you know, maybe eighty-five percent of who I am, and that <clears throat> other fifteen is reserved, maybe just for me or just for people who like really want that kind of darker side. I guess it reminds me of something that um, I, I read
2: that Anna had said about how you have you completely, totally, and one hundred percent understand each other. Mm-hmm. So you don't even have to talk the 15%. For it's her,
3: true. It's I true. Think. It's true. I mean, we really did spend every waking moment together, which I think <laughs> in hindsight there was definitely some some not negatives but uh difficulties with that. But um at the same time it was like this concentrated, you know, 5 years that we basically feel like we knew each other 15 by the time we were done because because it was just the two of us and because we were together every single day all day, we had to learn this like kind of kooky little language between the two of us to kind of make shortcuts, but also to to share love and emotion throughout service that we needed to keep ourselves, you know, uplifted. And so uh, what did that entail? What is the secret quirky little language? So one thing that's kind of funny is in the dining room at Take Root, there was only one between the kitchen and the dining room, there was only one very skinny wall that we could stand behind where people couldn't see us. And it was like the size of one of our bodies. We had to stand facing each other behind it. If we wanted to have any conversation that people couldn't see or hear... And so that wall became kind of hilarious by the end because we shared very warm moments and, you know, and touching moments behind it. But we also fought in whispers behind (laughs) it very often, too. But the language, you know, they were a lot of them were through our eyes. They were just, you know, we had to understand, you know, not only just behind you when you're carrying a plate, but also like, you know, this person is like this. This person is like that. Be prepped before you approach the table. And. We now can still do it. I will regrettively say that Anna sometimes sends me those looks across the dining table if I'm saying something I shouldn't. And I'm like, <laughs> no, I don't remember that sign. I'm just going to keep talking. Right. It, it's sort of the, um, the eye equivalent mm. of the swift kick in exactly. the ankle. Like exactly. Don't go there. Exactly. And I'm very familiar with it because I have... A uh, 100% Italian mom, she used to call it the evil eye. Uh-huh. And she'd send it through the rear view mirror. So. <laughs> keep, keep you
2: tamped exactly. down in the back of the car. Exactly. So when you were, just going back to this notion of narrative and the idea that you were doing, uh, you know, a 12 course tasting menu, mm-hmm. was that a narrative? In addition to the, I understand the comfort and the intrigue, mm-hmm. was there a story you were trying to tell, like, what was the because you could have done anything, mm-hmm. right? I mean, mm-hmm. done mm-hmm. I mean, you could have done family style. I mean, you could have done absolutely all Italian. Yeah, and your background being, um, well, the spot your your restaurant background being spotted mm-hmm. pig and aquavit. I was interested when I. You know, learned that that your next step, the thing that you had like so deep inside of you, was actually a twelve course tasting mm-hmm. menu mm-hmm. because you wouldn't necessarily yeah. have predicted that. Mm-hmm. So is it because you there was a story you wanted to tell through out that time or
3: like how did that Well, I think that, you know, tasting menus are so polarizing. I'm sure you understand that. I mean, fine dining in its in its quality and its sense is is kind of you know it's it's exclusive by price. You know, it's lengthy and how long you have to sit at a table. But um, for me, I I love the study of uh, somebody's mind through food. So you're sitting there and you're they're sharing with you little moments of their mind. You don't get to stay with those moments very long because they last what three bites, maybe four. Um and so that's what I was really drawn to and have still been very drawn to and what we intend to do with our next place as well. Because and I think so often people who aren't familiar with creating tasty menus or or dining at them, they think it's just a series of dishes, you know. Um, oh, I'll start with something small, something medium, and then it'll get bigger, and then it's something sweet. But and that's important as well, of course. But I think but that is it important? I mean, I, I ask that because, you know, it, it strikes me that we have this convention
2: mm-hmm. around um the way that we eat. Mm -hmm. And the convention is you start small and then maybe you get to middle Mm -hmm. and then you get bigger. And that's in terms of size. It's also in terms Mm -hmm. of flavor. It's also in... I mean, ironically, the interest is usually the inverse, Mm -hmm. right? The most interesting thing is the small thing. The least interesting thing is the big thing. But um, I don't know. Does that have to be the convention?
3: Like... Seems like that was that's ripe for yeah no absolutely and I think that when we s- did start to challenge those things we always would hear people say to us about three quarters of the meal because the first three quarters there was no protein there was you know usually no fish or meat at all maybe uh, you know. A sauce, or you know, a mousse of a liver of some fish or something that would appear with a vegetable, but for the most part, it wasn't there. And then by the time they did taste something, it was very small. And they said, "Well, I didn't even realize I wasn't eating meat," or you know, that's in terms of the ingredients, or like the bread instead of it coming first, it came in the middle towards the end of the meal. And um, you know, just the other day, Anna and I were out, you know, doing something upstate, and we stopped to get ice cream, and it was like five thirty, and then we got home and made dinner, and we were both thinking like that was so. You know, so fun, you know, that we had dessert first. But at the same time, it actually changed what we wanted to eat for dinner because we had already been satiated in that sweet way. So we ended up having a super salty pasta for dinner because it was like, that's what we crave. So I think there is something fun about turning these conventions on their head. And also for your palate, I mean, it's exciting. It's, you know, not something you're expecting to come next is better than something you're expecting to come next.
2: Actually, I, I love that idea. Like, truly, why does sweet have to come last? I mean, maybe there's a reason, mm-hmm. but maybe there isn't a reason. And, um, I, I mean, I, end every meal with like one piece of chocolate. Mm -hmm. I mean,
3: I just always have it in the freezer at our house
2: for sure. uh, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just something, I don't know why, Mm -hmm. like I don't know if it's, um, biological craving that that's how I want to finish a meal. So maybe there is something that sweet comes after, but I don't know. I feel like it's just generations of people Mm -hmm. put ice cream at the end.
3: Yeah. I recall reading, um, something that David Kinch had said about, uh, his tasting menu at Manresa where they, they started the meal and ended it with something that looked identical. Uh, they And they had totally different flavors, but one was savory and one was sweet. And the idea of A bookending a meal I thought was really fascinating even though it it was starting with savory and ending with sweet it was this kind of mind flip on you that wait I had that already but then when you put it in your mouth you didn't and I think that there's always ways to twist and turn those conventions of sweet and savory though I I will say I think a lot of people want to end their meal with something sweet and like they really they really look around like was this over by the last savory (laughs) course and I used to have to tell them we had our pre dessert I'd say this is you know this is your last course before the sweet stuff comes, because they always wanted to know, because they'd yeah. want to get something different to drink. So I think it's it's comfort. Again, it's tradition. People really like that. So are there chefs like David Kinch, or
2: your menu sounds a little bit Dan Barber's. Dan Barber mm. has an like extraordinary mm-hmm. bread course like mm-hmm. in the middle mm-hmm. of the meal at Stone Barns, Blue Hill Stone Barns. Are there chefs that you look up to who you think are turning things upside down, inside out that you admire? or? Yeah,
3: I think that actually... Funny. Or who are doing just things that the old-fashioned way, which is another thing to admire. Yeah, so that's what I was going to say. It's funny. Um April and I, since many years ago having worked there, have become friends as, you know, I've moved through the industry. And I can dine at her April restaurant. Bloomfield, April who Bloomfield, who was the yes, um, chef at Spotted Pig and now, um, yeah. And... Um, To me, I always used to think I remember making this dish that I actually make for myself literally all the time at home now. It was her radish salad, and it was radish with Parmesan and basil, and the method of how it was made was more complicated than how it tasted. And I remember thinking to myself when I would create Tasty menus, like, why does... You know why are we approaching fine dining or tasting menus any different than we are just a dish that somebody's getting there, like the salty and the crunchy and um, and the savory and the sweet and all the balance. And I think that I'm usually inspired by and drawn to people who are creating very simple food, um, and it doesn't have to matter what the setting of the restaurant is. You know, I had the most amazing meal of my entire life at Restaurant at Meadowood. Okay, that's incredible, three Michelin star restaurant,
2: but <laughs> Meadowood, which is in uh, Napa Valley, and Chris Costes, the chef, and it is a parade of uh, extraordinary dishes extraordinary place in an extraordinary
3: place absolutely right and we were lucky enough to stay there too so I was very happy about that (laughs) but um but I've also had you know extraordinary meals um at places you know upstate that are just on the roadside um and it's about the spirit of uh of the place but also the intention of the chef behind it and you don't always need to know why you're doing something simply but when you have that intuitive thought to do it that way I feel like I'm drawn to cooks like that mostly I think April's such an interesting
2: example though because having um Cooked her recipes, or mm-hmm. uh, you know, knowing her cookbooks, what is on the plate seems so simple. Mm-hmm. Justin smiley's a little bit this mm-hmm. way too from mm-hmm. Upland, mm-hmm. Um, people in this robust Italian tradition. But then you find the technique
0: mm-hmm. behind
2: it, and you see how long it takes to either put together the dish, or you know, all the steps that are involved, and what you have at the end of the day is like a perfect piece of meat in a stew. Mm-hmm. But you're like, oh, you didn't do that, like you know, over oh. an open flame, just sitting
3: there breaking down the... It's totally know. true. I was saying to you before we started this that I just started listening to books on tape and the one I just finished was Provence 1970. I just figured why not start there? And so then of course I went off on a million tangents and started researching everybody that was ever mentioned in the book um, and Richard That's Olney r- really came fun. to... Yeah, it really was. But Richard Olney has come you know up a few times in my career and, and I was retouching back on his writing and his approach to food and that complex simplicity which I think is so fun because when you look at a dish... Um, like one we had at Take Root was our vegetable tea course. And it was... Uh, that blows my yeah. mind. Yeah, it was really special. And it was inspired by my wife and my... We have a ritual every morning where we have coffee together. And I love all the different things that hold the cream and the sugar and the spoons and everything that happens And um, but holding something warm. And the vegetable tea took a week to make. And all it looked like was clear brown liquid. So it was like... <laughs> so when it would come to the table, I mean, it would be this incredible smell. But really, like what you're looking at is clear brown liquid. (laughs) So (laughs) tell how you make it because that is uh, really interesting. Yeah. So essentially we quarter the the onions and then we dry them like tea leaves in the oven. Um, and so they end up looking brown and shriveled, (laughs) um, uh, not terribly exciting. And then we steep them in hot water, um, without a single bubble coming to the surface so that they really do steep. Um, and usually it stays pretty clear then, but I, I, like it perfectly clear. So then we do the, um, clarification via the freezer method for like a consomme instead of clarifying it with a raft. Um, And then it just is incredible. And it's like, it tastes like a concentrated French onion soup, but feels like water in your mouth.
2: I want to try that one day.
3: uh, You will. You absolutely will. It's going to stay with me forever. But I guess, are there things that you feel like you'll take with you forever? That's one. That is definitely one, yeah. Um, and, yeah, there's there's a couple, like, dishes that I always say to Anna, I really want to bring that one back, but I don't want to do something again because, you know, I think a lot of chefs have trouble, like, repeating things. Some don't. But um, so I think there definitely will be some other ingredients or, or techniques or dishes that will come back in their own new way. Okay, so um, let's talk about your new project, if it's talkable. So mm-hmm. you're you, –
2: um, there will be a next. and um, After this question, we're going to take a quick break and then come back and talk about th- one of the things that fascinates me the most, which is your ability to control your mind and time. Mm-hmm. Because I think most people um, fret that they will never have success again, mm-hmm. that how can they s- stop doing something that's working, and they really don't think about how to have a great life and I feel mm-hmm. like you and Anna have spent a lot of time Thank you. thinking about that mm-hmm. um, but before we take that break I just want to hear what are you thinking about a next project I don't know if it has a name does it have a place does it have a size um
3: Can't reveal the name yet, but uh, it has one. That's good. It does have a name, and it's not going to be take root. It's not going to be take root. Um, So, it's going to be in the Catskills on the west side of the river, which is where my wife and I live. Um, And it'll be deeply in the mountains Um, where we are in the process, literally as we speak right now, of buying a property. It's a little bit drawn out because there's some hurdles to get over, but it's the dream spot that we've been looking for for a year. Um, And it will be a tasting menu. Um, And it's the, the property if it goes through fingers crossed um has stunning mountain views and river frontage and it's really everything that we've kind of ever dreamed of making come true but um we really want to bring the spirit of what the Catskills have been to people from the city and from there uh back to you know the hearts of visitors and locals which is you know it's a vacation place to retreat um And uh, but also kind of the spirit of the history and the narrative and the ingredients um, and through kind of through our lens, which is, you know, both feminine and fun, but also comforting and intriguing. (laughs) (laughs) And um, will you have places to stay, a place to stay Uh, for guests? For guests. Uh, We will not on the property, but there are some really awesome places literally down the street or a few miles away that um, some friends of ours own and some um, some bigger places for people to stay. And that was also part of the why it took so long to find a place. It, it just important. seems like you need those two. Of course. To, I mean, yeah. ideally
2: they come together, of right? Of course, so that you yeah. have tourists yeah. and locals and yeah. you'll be a destination to yes. be sure. And yes. You want Hopefully. people to be able to go to sleep after they... Exactly, I mean,
3: yeah. And that was, you know, uh, and, and the the kind of positive of where we live is it's so beautiful everywhere so a lot of the properties we looked at were really beautiful but they maybe didn't have all the things that were necessary and a few of them we placed offers on and fell through for a bunch of different reasons but um and then when we saw this one we're like oh wow everything really happened for a reason but now we have to get it so um we have a few yucky things to do first which is you know including town boards and zoning and stuff but um once that gets done um, which it will, uh, the power of positive thought, uh, we will have the place and then eventually be able to kind of talk a little bit more openly about the name and the concept and what we're going to be doing there. I think you came pretty close, though. Yeah. I think that's
2: great because I, I I feel like I'd heard you uh, thinking about different places mm-hmm. and, and different ideas mm-hmm. behind what you would do. So it's really good to know this. Yeah. And uh, with that, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about, um, you know, living your – Best life in controlling it and not being controlled by success. Totally.
1: This episode is brought to you by Brooklyn Botanic Garden, a stunning 52 acre garden in the heart of Brooklyn featuring spectacular plant displays year round. On Thursday, August 23rd, Brooklyn Botanic Garden will host the Beer and Bocce Benefit, a -a one-of-a-kind garden party featuring lawn games, live music, and unlimited beer tastings by some of Brooklyn's top beer makers. Proceeds from the Beer and Bocce Benefit provide essential support for the garden's educational and community programs. And mark your calendars for the annual Chili Pepper Festival on Saturday, September 29th. New York's hottest fall tradition will set the garden ablaze with scorching bands from around the world, dozens of fiery food artisans, and hours of chili chocolate debauchery. Learn more about Brooklyn Botanic Garden at bbg.org.
2: Welcome back. This is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly. My guest today is Elise Kornack. You maybe know her from her restaurant take root with her wife Anna Hieronymus I love that name I know I and mean, you ha- nailed it too because uh,
3: uh, no one does so. but Hieronymus Bosch
2: <laughs> yes the artist and um, I bet there must have been jokes in her childhood oh, around oh every
3: time we say her name to anybody they say that yeah, <laughs> <For> the <most laughs> there right. you go yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I've hit probably the two largest yeah. cliches yeah. in your world it's
3: true but actually you nailed her name which usually gets like Anna and Anonymous and no one gets it right so you did <laughs> it's, it's better than, a... like Anna Anonymous yes it's true <laughs> <laughs> that's true, that's true. God. So
2: when uh, one of the things I seems you wanted to do in uh, you know, starting your own restaurant is control your time. Mm-hmm. And you were open three days a week. You took a break in there. You closed the restaurant for a few months. You needed to renovate. Mm-hmm. Um, that alone is unusual mm-hmm. because lost revenue mm-hmm. um, and a lot of other reasons. Mm-hmm. And then you just plain old. Shut mm-hmm. down without a plan. It's true. Yeah, uh, that to me would be uh, pa- you know panic attack uh, territory. So, <laughs> tell me how you think about what's valuable
3: in life, mm-hmm. and how you've achieved that. So, um, I feel like I w- I'm both uh, fortunate and I wouldn't say unfortunate, but unfortunate that my my parents have always instilled in us to. To do something that makes us happy. And they've made that possible by being, you know, successful in their own rights. Um, and I also am familiar with, you know, mental unwellness. Um, my mother struggles from depression and anxiety. And so I'm very aware of, you know, how important our mental and physical health is um also my dad is a doctor and my mom's a yoga teacher so and you know so it's definitely there and my wife's family owns a um, holistic health center so it's not not present in our life um but, but did that help a lot actually because that seems like that's a
2: lot of support from people saying you know follow your path mm-hmm. and, and block out the
3: outside. Absolutely. I mean, 100%. Now it's reversed. Now I'm telling my mom that I'm like, come on, follow your path, you know, do your truth. And she's making decisions and she's hemming and hung I'm like, well, what did you tell me? Um, <laughs> but, you know, so definitely that's, you know, at the core, the most important, This any support system is how you can make any really major decision in your life. Um, but also I think from an art background, you know, when you put your pen to paper, your brush to paper for the first time, you're not thinking, oh, I'm going to make a masterpiece. This is going to live forever. It's going to be in a museum. Everyone's going to love it. You know, you're just working. You're just, you know, working something Although, out. I don't know. I think there's probably lots of people <laughs> who are like, I'm going to make a masterpiece. Yeah, yeah, I'm right. a genius. Yeah. They hope they hope yeah. that. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, some more often than not, you're actually just doing studies. You're, you're mm-hmm. practicing, and you're working. And and truth be told, the beginning of Take Root was just that. I mean, we were doing a supper club in our backyard. We got kicked out because it wasn't legal. We looked for a spot that was. So it was a solution to a problem. Um, And then the name was taken over from the supper club. We both hated it, but unfortunately it went into paper at one point and we were like, okay, it's over now. Um, and we ended up actually kind of laughing, looking back on the fact that it was symbolic in the way that it was like, we actually clearly did need to stay there and and make some roots for a few more years than we anticipated. And so I think my, my approach to any project I do is always, it doesn't have to last forever. Mm -hmm. Um, if it does wonderful, if it doesn't, that's equally wonderful. Um, and I think that that approach in itself is what keeps us both, Anna and myself, sane. Um, because then you're not so attached to the outcome of what you're doing. And you're more in falling in love with the process. And what about balancing your open-ended approach mm-hmm. with Anna's perhaps
2: less open-ended approach?
3: <laughs> um, there's a It's funny. There's a lot of it's going to be okay from me. <laughs> from me. Um, and like, how does she
2: take that? Like, is that annoying to her at some point? Or um,
3: she just... She's learned Trusting. over the years to really trust me. Um, yeah. It took a while. Uh, I remember a number of occasions while owning the restaurant that I would assure her that things were going to be okay. And there was a couple times that maybe I was like, okay, it better be because I'm really putting all my eggs in this basket. But, and it always was. So I think by now she's learned that if I'm saying that, I really do mean it. And that she can just, like, relax um, so I'm very, I'm very grateful that she trusts me in that way. But sometimes it's a little bit of a burden. <laughs>
2: well, of course, because then you have to make it happen. It's, like, true. it's she, true. She puts
3: so much trust in it's you, true. and you're like, it's true.
2: I'm just, I, you it, want to make it it's real.
3: True. It's true. But then the role sometimes becomes she supports me in being kind of the leader. So it's very interesting that you know I assure her things are going to be okay, but then she kind of like you know holds my hand through it. So it's very interesting how it kind of balances itself out.
2: Huh? Is that why you're like? The perfect yin yang.
3: I, th- I, mean, I'm very lucky to have to have her in my life and to be to married such a wonderful person. But also, like, I need her <laughs> because uh-huh. she really does balance me out for sure.
2: I think the the love story is you met, um, like in the Cubbyhole Bar, mm-hmm. and you met one night, and you
3: literally would never. Yeah, occur. that was
2: literally it. Yeah,
3: yeah. Um, how did you know? Um, so it's funny because. <sighs> Uh, well, I will, sh- I will share it. Honestly, I had been on the way to the bar and I'd lost, uh, something that was important to me on the way that was also important to Anna. And, um, she said to me like, let's go out on the street and look for it and blah, blah, blah. And I said, okay. And we started talking and before, you know what I said, want to come back to my apartment? And she was saying, yeah, I have some of that stuff that you were losing. <laughs> um, and I said, great. So, uh, we came back and hung out and we ended up staying up till 6am talking about ghosts and paranormal and which we both, you know, believe in and, and have a lot of opinions on. And, we were both like, this is weird and fun. And then she spent the night and that was basically it. And so it was a moment of realizing like, if you can have like really odd and interesting and fun conversations with this person and laugh with them and enjoy their company this quickly, I should look into this a little further for sure. Okay.
2: Well let's look into ghosts and paranormal. So, um, because you're probably living in an area where there's ghosts
3: and uh, 100%
2: (laughs) and have you come across some and do you think it's unusual to find someone who shares your belief in those two things?
3: Um, well now in knowing um, my wife's family definitely not but um, in mine certainly um, I used, why because
2: they also believe in they do
3: mine do not right. uh, as much um, some a little but um, my family's house in Nantucket abutted a cemetery um, my whole childhood so I used to walk the cemetery to like kind of clear my head which totally weirded my entire family out and I would come back saying you guys I found headstones with your names on them and they were like that's so weird like what are you
0: talking
3: about <laughs> and so to say that those kinds of things to my wife and her be like oh that's so cool I was like wow let's do this um anytime we were viewing houses before we got ours we would go into the older houses which there are a lot of upstate you know the old sure. you know farmhouses and we'd be a real estate agent would say like and look at this and you guys can renovate that and I would say it's haunted we need to leave <laughs> so it's kind of become a running joke that like anything that's not new might be haunted it's <laughs> obviously not true but but,
2: but could of be. course, that' so, exactly, be. Yeah. and sometimes it is, yeah, exactly. but you were mentioning Nantucket, and I know you spent a lot of um, childhood time mm-hmm. there, and Nantucket is a seasonal place, mm-hmm. and it seemed like that notion of seasonality um, really landed with you and Most helped certainly. influence the idea that you know if you work eight months a year mm-hmm. and you're close four months, that's actually a way mm-hmm. of life. Mm-hmm. So c- how did that thinking sort of seep into your mm-hmm. mind?
3: Well, at a very young age, I mean, my parents have had the house. I think we're nearing on 40 years now, um, or something like that, before me. So, um, And uh, I always fell in love with the idea of this place that was filled with life during a certain period of the year, and then it was quiet during the other. And after college, I lived there year-round, and I just loved the December-January period where it was like dark and quiet and sultry. Um, in terms of the spirit but also you know there are sacrifices to be made when you take time off or you close and we all are aware of that you can't have it all all the time but I was lucky enough to work for a chef when I was young there in Nantucket who had uh, three sons and his wife was the hostess at the restaurant and they would close in the winter and he'd Coach his son's hockey team, and and they would you know be able to drive their kids to and from school. And I would ask him how does it work, and he's like, "It's work. It works because this is what we want in our life. It's important to us to be able to have those things." And I, it's also equally important to run a restaurant. So, they made sacrifices that were necessary so they could do the things they felt they needed. And what do you feel like the sacrifices are that you've made? I mean, shutting down for a year,
2: mm-hmm. um, and then even the the short term, you know, the break that you took mm-hmm. to renovate. What are the mm-hmm. sacrifices? along the way that are meaningful to you rather than like oh we haven't gotten I mean you've gotten tons of press frankly <laughs> like, you apparently can just you know walk down the street and send out and do recipes because you've done some recipe mm-hmm, developing I've mm-hmm. seen and then writing you've done mm-hmm. written some great pieces so you can do that and still get tons of uh, press but what are the yeah. like true sacrifices
3: um, well of course the income yeah. sacrifice yeah um, we are very, very, very blessed in that um, we, you know, we saved. And then we also had some help from our families when we left um, in order to, you know, buy our house and to set our our life up upstate. But we are also very lucky that upstate is not terribly expensive to live. Um, you know, aside from a farmer's market trip every week, um, you know, we grow a good portion of our food. And, you know, the leisures are free, you know, hiking and swimming and, and fishing and stuff. Um, and hanging with friends. Um, so we're lucky in that sense. And then, you know, I also had connections that I had made through the industry that kept the ball rolling for me. I was able to do some speaking engagements and and writing, and like you said, and also I consulted on some restaurants and, of course, got paid for that. So <laughs> that's where the income got picked up. Sacrifices? The sacrifices, I Aside would say. for income. I mean, yeah, no, I, that, that's, no, sort of, that's uh, it. That's a small one. The bigger one for me is really not having a source for my creativity, a, a, an outlook. Um, you know, sharing food and cooking for people is really important to me. Um, But not, you know, not in a home setting as much. In fact, Mm -hmm. I struggled really deeply with that when we moved upstate because I hadn't cooked for friends and family very often. Mm -hmm. Um, And I kind of hated it for the first (laughs) eight months. I felt like I was had so much anxiety over what I was cooking or how it was coming out, how people were receiving it, because that was just what embedded in my brain of how to cook. And you so couldn't long. turn that off. I really couldn't. And for a while, Anna was, like, threatening me, we're not going to have people over anymore if you can't get this together. And eventually it softened, and I started to realize, like, this is just not a restaurant, so I don't need to treat it that way. And now, you know. And what's the difference? Because it does seem like you're feeding people mm-hmm, either way. Mm-hmm. Um, is it, what's the difference to you? I think the difference is that when you're, cooking in a restaurant setting there's it's not just the the food you're serving it's the environment the experience everyone's taking in and they are I mean no matter how uh people want to look at it, everyone is critical of their experience in some capacity why because they're you know there's a transaction you know there's money being given and so even if you go to ah. your favorite neighborhood spot and you're like oh it doesn't matter what things cost or how they come out I just love being here well no it really does because you are at the end of the day paying a check and so there's that pressure of wanting to people to be really happy and satiated and, um, with your experience where at your house, like there is no money being exchanged. It's just friendship and, and fun and laughter and conversation. So once I started to realize that those things were really like filling me up, I didn't need to worry about how people were taking the food.
2: That's funny. Cause I have, um, clearly never worked in a restaurant <laughs> and, um, I, you know, I, I wrote a book called Master mistakes in the kitchen cause mm-hmm. I'm not a great mm-hmm. cook, but I feel a huge amount of pressure just from having been the editor of food and wine for, mm-hmm. um, two decades. Yeah, I mean. (laughs) And then everybody's like, you know, they really expect to come over and be well-fed or Mm -hmm. thoughtfully fed. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I overfeed, I over, you know, I make 10 dishes. I Mm -hmm. can't make three. Like, I go Mm -hmm. to people's houses and they do like a roast chicken, a salad, Mm -hmm. like maybe a starch. Mm -hmm. Um, It's true. And then dessert. I'm like, but really? Mm -hmm. That's all you have to do? I I, I
3: characterologically mm-hmm. incapable. Oh, I totally get it. I mean, two nights ago, we had our friend um, Kulu Henry over oh. for dinner and her and her husband. And I we weren't planning on having them over for dinner. We were planning on going out. But the plans changed last minute and I said oh god all I have in the house is nothing so I was like I have herbs from the garden I'll make a a pesto can you bring dried pasta and she brought peaches and tomatoes and we kind of like threw together this gorgeous salad and and pasta but like the dishes were in the sink and the pots were everywhere and that is so not okay by me usually But it started to rain outside, and we had the screen open, and we thought, like, this is great, actually. We don't even need to worry about the fact that, like, there's salty water all over the counter. And um, because the spirit of it was more important than the food. Someday I'll get there. Yeah. I just. It took me a year. So I'm not, I don't think I have enough practice
2: at it. I'm kind of not even close to that. I definitely was, like, wiggling in my seat a little bit about (laughs) that. You still are today, just for those of you who can't see her wiggling. Um, You've moved to a place that is. I mean, I guess it's not remote, but it's not, and it's 25 minutes from mm-hmm. Hudson, New York. Mm-hmm. What does it feel like to be outside the the trends, everything that everybody else is doing, the things you would read about on Instagram? Like, does that, um, how does that feel?
3: Um, it feels a little bit relieving, but at the same time, I still feel through friendships and um, networking with people in the industry that we still are connected in, in a way. I mean if we see friends that come up from the city or some that have uh, moved up there, there's still the gossip and there's still the, you know, the conversation about the restaurants and where to eat when you do go into the city and what to avoid and you know, what, how the reviews were. I mean, of course we're still staying up to date on everything that's going on just for fun. Are you
2: really? Yeah. I mean, naturally, uh,
3: naturally. I mean, I'll, you know, when a review comes out and I'm like hanging outside, I'll like pick it up and read it. But you know, it's not the forefront Anymore, um, which which is where the relief comes from. It's you know I'm not worried about it. I don't think about it as much. But if I have some time, I'll you know scan through Eater and Grub Street.
2: (laughs) And in thinking about what your next project will be, does the, um, the The feeling of eyes on you is that something that you welcome because it's nice to have the attention mm-hmm. or i I've read about how you know w- you expect a certain type of scrutiny mm-hmm. that's what mm-hmm. one does right as mm-hmm. you said it's a it's a transaction, but in thinking about the next project and the location in mm-hmm. which you're you're doing it, is that something
3: that concerns you or not really at all or um, it definitely does uh honest like kind of a little bit more aware of it than I am because I'm really focused on wanting to just like you know get the keys in hand get the, right now um, but I think currently in the community upstate in both the Catskills and the Hudson Valley there's not there has not been aside from maybe Zach Palaccio any chefs that have moved from the city with any Really significant reputation to do anything. Um, Some really wonderful restaurants and some great people cooking, but all of them, their first thing was up there. And so I definitely and and now it's growing so much in popularity, and people are very attuned to what's going on upstate. And everyone we know from the city is now, oh, I'm coming up. Can I see you? And so um, I definitely think (laughs) that things are so busy. Like I Ah, came here to get away. I know. So I definitely think that in time, by the time we open, it'll be even more so. And I'm aware of the fact that. Um, some people didn't get a chance to come to Take Root, so there's probably some significant people out there that would love to taste our food or or see what we're up to.
2: Will there be more than 12 seats? Definitely, yes. That's awesome. Um, I was reading the piece that you did for Food & Wine, which I thought was extraordinary, which talked about uh, sort of a a decency pact, Mm -hmm. common decency Mm -hmm. pact, because there's so much conversation in the food world, important conversation about um, harassment, about mental health in the Restaurant world, I think that not a lot of focus is put on the customer Mm -hmm. um, because the customer uh, somehow is just the protected Mm -hmm. one. Uh, In restaurants, in theory, you can protect yourself in the back of the house Mm because it's whoever you hire. Exactly. Um, But the customer is a little bit harder to control. Of
3: course.
2: Um, Do you want to talk about?
3: Your, your thoughts about, like, the role of the customer in creating a good restaurant environment? Mm, of course. I think for so long, because of what I had mentioned earlier in regards to the financial transaction, we, of course, feel like, you know, we have no control over how to, you know, educate our customers or, you know, encourage them to behave a certain way because, you know you're taught for a very long time first of all they're always right and secondly that you know they're paying so you can't say anything to them but um, I actually think that the customer would benefit very greatly from having some some guidelines some boundaries because I think that I dine with people often that you know don't really know what's appropriate anymore especially with everything shifting with tipping and no tipping and um, how the back of house now delivers dishes and so there's a lot of people uh, you know specifically my family who are is not in tune with the industry as much as I am and they say is this appropriate? Appropriate, shy tip here. It says no gratuity, but I really want to. I liked my waitress, and so I actually think that right now we're in this moment where some guidelines would be really helpful and actually um, really beneficial to the the relationship between the staff and the customer, and certainly like to to benefit kind of a more um, a less scary conversation between um, the the diner and the the waitress or waiter um, that could be had maybe a language that could be developed or you know something um, that would help everybody work through the issues that are you know still very present and like where do you see that like where do you envision that um... for us we've talked a lot about in the next place how are we gonna you know put that at the forefront and what, what are, what kind of things are we going to implement? And we've kind of discussed this thing actually that Anna coined the common decency agreement of, of, is there a way that it could be on our website? Should it be when they make the reservation? Would it be on the menu? Like what way is it not going to be intrusive and affect the experience? Because of course these are really important questions to ask. You know, you don't want to sit down for dinner and then have this like, you know, contract in front of you. (laughs) I mean, how awkward, right? But we want to find a way to um, create uh, that that language between customers and diners, and one of that is to train the staff to feel comfortable to say when things are inappropriate in a way that's not gonna, you know, make the diner feel ostracized. Um, and I think a lot of that is also creating um, responsibility on the waiter, waitress, host, bartenders, um, and to to speak for themselves and not necessarily turn to the managing. Um, mm-hmm partners and and learn that you know they them too are a human being and how they're being treated matters and they don't need you know approval from somebody above them to speak out and what language can we give them that's not going to make the diner feel uncomfortable
2: right I think you also don't seem afraid of firing your diners Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. um, is important right because uh, there are a lot of people who want their restaurants be a place for mm-hmm. absolutely everyone. Mm-hmm. And you have very strong beliefs mm-hmm. and you want your diners to know that you have them. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter if they share them. They just yeah. can't like, actively object to that. Of course,
3: I mean, right now in this moment in our country, I mean, no restaurant or retail shop is just selling what they're selling. They're selling a point of view, and that is much deeper than just through their craft. It's, you know, it's social, it's political, it's environmental. Um, You know, we would be silly to not think that people are thinking those things when they come to our restaurant. Um, And and alternatively, that people aren't coming there because we think those things. And so I think, you know, we all reserve the right to, um, you know, turn down business from anybody at any time and we also understand that we're then sacrificing that person's check and maybe a bad yelp review or them telling their friends but I think you have to always balance what are you gaining from having that person really there that $35 or maybe it's a thousand if it's an expensive tasting menu but their energy is then sitting in that seat and and sitting with your staff and that memory of them being there really tugs on you for a long time I, I know it's still some of them still do with me so
2: well speaking of um yelp reviews that you mm-hmm. know the one of the poignant things in that uh food and wine piece was uh a woman who hadn't dined in the restaurant but gave you a review on <laughs> yelp Just yeah really appalling really horrifying uh, um do you want to talk about that and the the role of sort of anonymous reviews mm-hmm. and
3: how mm-hmm. that yeah um I think there's there's a moment when you have an interaction with somebody dining at your restaurant that you kind of know that they're a yelper and you just think either well I don't (laughs) really like yelp so I I my thought is yuck (laughs) it stinks um but I also think that that person believes um to look at it more openly and less narrow-minded that their voice matters and everyone's voice does in in turn matter um and so they're they really want to share something that they felt about your restaurant and if they've really fully dined there had the experience and and under tried to understand you and they have something to say then you know of course I encourage them to go and do so um but I also think that there needs to be more encouragement around people reaching directly to the restaurant why why is it necessary that if something didn't come out on time do you need to tell the next person to dine there it's probably just a glitch that evening I don't think it's gonna happen every night um, but in this particular instant that you're speaking of, there was a uh, somebody who um, came to the door at Take Root, essentially, uh, was very rude to me and then went on Yelp and wrote uh, a very homophobic and inappropriate message about who I was and what I looked like. It had nothing to do with my restaurant, nothing to do with my food, you know, our price point or how we served or our service or even the building, literally. It just was about the fact she was uncomfortable with who I was and what I looked like. And we felt like the problem with these things like Yelp is that this is a this is an access point. You know, this is a clear cut avenue directly to also hate and also to really uncomfortable conversation that shouldn't happen anywhere public, if at all. And and she had all she had was a password and a username to be able to do that. So I think that there needs to be um, you know more filtering um, and more understanding of what these things are for. And again, that comes from outward conversation and visibility. So a conversation in so many of these cases is key. And, and,
2: you know, one of the great hopes about food and one of the reasons it, you know, has potential to solve all the problems of the Mm -hmm. world is if you eat together, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: share a real conversation rather than judging you because you don't look like, Mm -hmm. you know... Who Who she wanted you (laughs) to look like. You didn't have long blonde hair. Yeah, yeah. um, You can make a lot of progress in this world. It's true. And just not even crossing the door to sit and share what the Mm meal is and understand Mm -hmm. even the piece of you that you're
3: sharing that
0: Mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm.
3: It's, um, no, it's totally true. It really is. And the more people out there that are fighting the good fight, you know, I'm, a dear friend of mine, Julia Tertian, is literally on the front line trying just to get people to literally pass a piece of bread across the table and, you know, share your name, who you are, where you're from. And it, it's powerful. And it's so inspiring to see that people are actually responding. So She
2: is a warrior. I know, she right? is
3: extraordinary. I totally agree with you. Um,
2: so the last question of the show is, is there a, a woman or a, who you admire who's in the food world, we always like to pass it forward and share someone who someone should look up the same way, you Mm -hmm. know, you're reading Provence 1970, you're like, you look up all the people in the book um, that people should
3: know about. You know, um, just trying to think off the top of my head right now. I don't have a name that's coming to my mind right away, but um, what I've been starting to do actually is starting a suggestion of how to find somebody inspiring versus the person is to, to look very locally, like immediately locally. So if you're in a city on your block, maybe go ask the Guy who owns your bodega, where he's from. Why, you know, why did he move here? Um, I remember going to a farm stand in uh, Socrates and I met this gentleman who owned it, and he's Sicilian, and we learned that our families had you know the same history and how they got to. And I said, "Why are you in Socrates Like, what, was, <laughs> what are you doing here?" And he told me, and he shared all these stories that I would have never known if I had not asked him. And so I think that these moments, those people, become actually sources of inspiration to me right now more so than somebody who is notable because people all know their story and I already know their story and I'm more inspired by learning someone's story they don't know.
2: That is a beautiful way to conclude this episode
3: of Speaking Broadly. Um, so how can people find you on social if they want to follow you? My n- full name, so Elise Kornack, is my Instagram it's also my website. So... I was lucky. No one already had it. <laughs> Your
2: website's really beautiful. Thank check you. out her
3: website. Check her out on
2: uh, Instagram. And you know where to find me, FW Scout on Instagram and Twitter. And thanks so much for listening. And we'll hope to have you back next week. And thank you to my engineer today, Matt, for doing a great job. And Carlin for forever being a great listener.